0: The Myth America Podcast, Episode 1 Living in Mythic Times. What are the myths we're living in, and how are they living in us? Join me weekly as we explore the stories we tell and simultaneously the stories that tell us. I'm Lee Malander, and this is Myth America. Well, I am just seriously psyched. This is the very first episode of Myth America as a podcast series. It actually was first originally born as a four-year-long stint as a weekly radio show, live radio show, on an NPR affiliate in upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains. And then we had a couple years of quiet hiatus, and it's back now, and I can't tell you how thrilled I am that we're starting again. So as I begin this first episode, it made sense to me to give you a sense of what Myth America is, what it's reaching for, where it started, and what its goals are. But what's most important is that it's freewheeling and it's unscripted. I will riff each week on some ideas that have been pinging around in my awareness that feel like they matter to me. And I want you to try these ideas on with me and taste them and roll around them, them, them around on your tongue and in your brain and even in your fingertips and your earlobes if you feel like it and see how they feel. And you might completely agree with what I'm saying, and you might completely disagree with me or something in between. And all of those reactions are totally cool. My hope is that an image or an idea or a metaphor that we explore together will spark your own train of thought about how we humans sit in and of the world in a way that has relevance and meaning and a sense of, oh yeah, yum, that tastes good for you. And then make you think, well, what about This. What about this other thought? And reach forward. Myth America is about opening and not necessarily finding answers, but actually learning to ask good questions and continuing to ask good questions. About me a bit, in addition to that, I am by training a cultural mythologist. And you may ask what the heck is a cultural mythologist, which is a decent question. And maybe the best definition that I found is from a colleague while I was still in grad school and she said that she thought this is what what a psychologist tries to do with an individual a cultural mythologist tries to do with cultures and communities digging out the deep stories and the images that work in our intersections and our understandings of the world and of ourselves and so it's really from to my mind how i approach myth in 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 this kind of work is is again, it's about that opening. It's about learning to ask questions and trying to see some of the things that are sitting. And I'll come back to that in a minute. What else about me? Um, I'm a lover of bad puns, as evidenced by the title of this podcast. Uh, I love imagination and possibility and how things can fall open in our lives. I'm in love with the unexplored places uh, in our backyards and in our psyches. Um, I've been a writer, a sometime performer of theater and music and dance and mostly a troublemaker and fomenter wherever I go. I like, I like stirring things up. And probably even more than that, I am more than anything a perennial toddler, and I am always going after that shiny set of keys that the world dangles in front of me and, and looking for new experiences and ideas. And so I'm, I'm inviting you in Myth America to come and chase some shiny keys with me in the world of myth and metaphor. And so today I want to start with something of a call to adventure in honor of of Joseph Campbell, and I want to start with a question for you, and it's a really basic question, it's a beginner question in a lot of ways, and I now actually have the Von Trapp singing in the back of my head, let's start at the very beginning, I was just watching a a silly send-up of them last night, so they are sitting in my subconscious, and now with any luck you do as well, have the Von Trapp singing in your head. If you've been caught by the idea of myths and mythology for a while, I'm sure you've thought about it a lot. I'm sure you've asked this question, what is myth, a lot, and probably come up with a number of answers. And if you're new to exploring myth, it might be a brand new question to you. But I think whether it's a long time thought about one or a brand new one, I think it's worth reaching in and holding it up again and looking at it through the light and seeing what kind of spangles and refracts off of it each time we ask the question. Because for me, every single time I ask this question, what is myth, what does it mean to me? Something new breaks open each time and sometimes pieces of things that I've been working and ideas deepen and settle and find a, a different kind of, of, of resonance and clarity. So. I'd love for you to take a moment and just think for you what is myth huge question lots of answers so I'm going to share some of the question or some of the answers rather that I think are relevant for this particular way of looking at myth and also are things that come up for people a lot in modern contemporary American culture if you're not a myth nerd. <laughs> generally when you say that's a myth you mean oh that's a lie oh that's just a lie it's just a myth and it's a fabrication it's a fiction it's something not worthy of consideration i think in part reflecting a world and a culture that in in many ways likes to think of itself as being rational i don't know that it always is but like we think we like to perceive ourselves as that and present ourselves as that and so if that's the case calling something a myth is a serious diss There's even a television show you may have seen, MythBusters, that was on Discovery Channel for a number of years. That and the the conceit of that show is that they used elements of the scientific method against the validity, uh, or using it to sort of test the validity uh, against rumors or myths or uh, videos or stories that they were holding the truth. And so they were pitching science and logos and rational thought against falsehoods, and they put myth in the title, in the center of what that falsehood exists existed in the, in the way that they worked this show. And it's a great duality. And it was a pretty good TV show. and It was very clean. Truth versus lie. Rationality versus made-up nonsense. And it brought this incredible kind of either-or clarity to things that was enjoyable and, and simple in, in its way that we could perceive it. And I think it's kind of relieving. I think in a world that's often very complex to have that black and white duality of one thing is right, one thing is wrong. We can step away when that's been defined and feel relieved and kind of check it off of our, of our psychological list of things to worry about. But I think that when you approach myth in that way, and you think of myth just as a lie or a fabrication, you've actually really missed the mark on what myth is. And it completely misses what myth and mythology actually can be, and how they can, and do both for good and for bad, deeply shape our individual and collective lives. So another way that folks think about myth is as a big, kind of ancient, sprawling story. So we think about you know the Greek myths, or the Roman myths, or Native American myths, or the Yoruban myths, or pick a culture, and, and there's, a, there's a mythic cycle that comes out of every culture around the world. And in this context, we tend to see them as kind of big old stories that are filled with gods and goddesses and magical creatures and their origin stories and their bigger than human adventures. And I think most of us who fall in love with myths start there and start in the stories. And I think we start often with a yearning for grand stories that do feel bigger than us or a desire to reach back into a culture, whether it's ours or something that feels very compelling and outside of our own experience, and, and learn from that and, and be a part of that somehow and, and have kind of a, 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 an imaginal, if not literal cosplay experience with it. It's reaching for something bigger than us. Epic can be really wonderful, particularly in lives that feel far too often like we're spending them you know worrying about whether or not we've brushed our teeth or we've paid the last heating bill on time or finished whatever that latest project was that came up for work or managed whatever that mundane thing is that we need to do moment by moment in the course of our lives and i think we we gravitate towards big stories even when they are in fact fictionalized ones not just mythic ones and i, I remember i was 12 i'm going to date myself now i was 12 when the very first star wars movie came out And I remember coming out of the theater, watching that film, sobbing, tears streaming down my face because I thought, I'm never going to do anything in my life that epic, that huge, that grand, that important. And in that moment, I, I, I couldn't bear the thought of that, that my life was going to be that much smaller. So I think it's one of the things that pulls at us from myth. But I also think that that can put myth in something of a, of a fictionalized place as well and something of a kind of way back machine that sits out there. You know, even the line from Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. And we can look at it with a certain kind of distance, even as we're yearning to be a part of it. We're never going to be. It's out there. And then I think it also can become a way, particularly when we're looking, looking at mythic cycles, where myth starts to, our understanding of it starts to get literalized in terms of what we think people believed about them, how we thought people interacted with them and, and created them and told them. And so we tell those big myths about quote unquote primitive cultures that, and how they made up fictions because they didn't understand how the world worked and so they had to make up these sort of ridiculous stories about how things happened and why they happened and and how things functioned. And so sort of pre-scientific thinking. I actually think pretty clearly that the folks who push that idea don't understand metaphor as a concept. I actually don't necessarily believe that early folks who were telling big mythic stories had any concrete locked in sense of them being a, a kind of scientific truth, but instead they were a different way of understanding things. But it's easy for us to put myth in that category in a post-enlightenment world i think it's another piece of the the you know rationality versus fantasy and and logos versus mythos i think the two intertwine in some really interesting ways and i think we wrestle with that in this culture the if you are, are a follower of philosophy you, i'm sure you know the the nietzsche quotes god is dead friedrich nietzsche the german philosopher and he after the Enlightenment, he really started to work this idea that that this idea of scientific understanding of the world had ended our sense of the existence of something divine. And he was doing it in a Christian context, certainly in, in Western Europe, but that, that it had broken that, that we no longer lived in a world that had divinity within it. And started to kind of literalize this. And he, he actually, he saw... This process of of scientizing, if I want to make up a word, our thinking, as as really a killing of that divinity. And his whole statement, which I think is worth worth hearing, is translated: "Is God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. And how shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives." Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we simply not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? So big, grand German philosophy there, swirling around, uh, light, very light. But I think his idea is an interesting one that if you start to understand the world in a rational way, that you have you have killed you have killed the divine, you have killed anything that makes the world kind of magic and holy and sacred, and he worked that in uh, a, a piece uh, that was first published in 1882. Um, it's published often as the Gay Science in, in in English. I think a more accurate actually translation, which I think is kind of more wonderful, is the Joyful Pursuit of knowledge and understanding. And I love the, the tension of, of the joyful pursuit and the statement that God is dead and it's the most horrific thing we could have ever done and there's no way back out of it. And of course he he was picking up on, on ideas that Hegel were working was working and a couple of other philosophers as well, but he, Nietzsche was really the one who brought it to the proverbial table. And I think it holds a very particular place, that sense of that break between what is the sacred and what is not sacred, what is secular, sits in our culture a lot. I think there's a big mythic energy around that and probably is worth a whole conversation at some point. But I think it's another place. So there's that sense of myth as complete fiction, myth as something that is outside of us, myth as something that we've killed through a different understanding. And then I think there's some other ways to sort of be embraceive. And I wanted to take a moment and, and look at what Campbell had to say, what Joseph Campbell had to say about myth. And one of the things that he said on more than one occasion, somewhat wryly, was that a myth is somebody else's religion. And I think what he's working there is, you know, I can truly believe my truth of my stuff that I know that, that so the divinity that I'm connected with is the right one. And yours is a series of, of bedtime stories on some level. And he was, as I said, being a bit wry, but I think he was making a point. Beyond that, though, he had some very specific ways of identifying what he thought myth was. I'm going to run through those. Uh, He he called them the functions of myth, sort of why myth exists. These are from uh, Pathways to Bliss, his book Pathways to Bliss. Uh, And there are, uh, as I said, four of them, and they kind of capture different chunks of how myth works in both culture and i think individual psyches so the first one the first function of mythology is to evoke in the individual a sense of grateful affirmative awe before the monstrous mystery that is existence it's another big huge grand statement we're going to do a lot of big huge grand statements on myth america so i i I think this is fascinating part of it is i think what's really cool about this, interesting about this, is the idea of it being a grateful and affirmative awe. There's something powerful in that word grateful to me. It's a a really intriguing word choice. And what I love about that idea is that it's, it's connecting myth in a kind of generative way, in an affirmative, as he says, in an affirmative way, into framing questions about things that we can't understand, that we can't explain rather than a failure to explain things. So that takes the sort of literalizing of how we often portray people who are early working myth and, and, and working in a live in an alive way in their culture, who may even now be working myth live in, in, live in their culture, and not seeing it as this sort of reductionist thing that they've done because they don't understand, but instead it's a different way of understanding and a different way of recognizing that we aren't necessarily going to ever be able completely to understand. Joseph Campbell's second function of mythology is to present an image of the cosmos, an image of the universe that will maintain and elicit this experience of awe, or to present an image of the cosmos that will maintain your sense of mystical awe and explain everything that you came into contact with in the universe around you. So here he starts to get into this kind of explanation point and, and I bump up against this, and I, I both agree and disagree with him on this. But I think what he's reaching for is, is not quite that literal. We made up a story because we were too dense to understand that, that this is a, an image, a metaphorical way of understanding that's opening us up to magic, to awe, the word that he continues to use, to the numinous. So to, to the, the things that relate to the divine, to the spiritual, the supernatural. So in this moment, he's saying myth encapsulates, encapsulates that and holds that and opens that for us. In the third function, Joseph Campbell thinks that the, this work, this function, is, is to create a, a, an order to validate and maintain a certain sociological system he writes a shared set of rights and wrongs proprieties or improprieties on which your particular social unit depends for its existence so now we're getting into the cultural construct stuff right this is how we build rules for ourselves and how we create story together and how we wend these and weave these mythic ideas and the stories and the metaphors the archetypal images that are shaping the constructs of what we agree on as the playground, as the, as the sandbox that we live in together. And I think this is how, as a cultural mythologist, this, this is a framing that I use a lot, and I think other mythologists who think about myth in the same way that I do use a lot, that I might look at a big story that's sitting, sitting in a culture and try to look at how that's shaping the decisions that we're making, the political decisions we're making, or economic ones, or sociological ones, that how are they building the structures of what we're actually physically doing on a day-to-day basis in this bigger way. So at, for as an example, uh, one of the great sort of American myths that sits in our psyches is this sense of the, the myth of rugged individualism, individualism, easy for me to say. And the, that it's, you know, we, are, we, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? This is a big image for U.S. culture. And there's a lot of energy behind it. And if you stop and you think, it informs a lot of ways that we think about the world and we interact with it. Another one is, is the sense of opportunity of equality uh, that sits built into a sense of democracy, And what what that means, what a democratic world looks like, and how we all have an opportunity. We have equal opportunities in this country. Big story. Now, again, I'm not saying that these are necessarily true or untrue, but they're big stories that are sitting in our psyches, both as individuals who live in within that culture, and also collectively as we as we make decisions and we move things forward. Another one I think is we we believe in this country in some very particular ways into a story, lean into a story about our own national greatness and uniqueness, uh, and and that informs a lot of who we are and what we do and how we talk about ourselves. So we. Sometimes I think we fall into the trap of thinking that those are literally true, those stories. And I think that's not necessarily helpful. I think, I understand the seduction of it. It's particularly the powerful ones are, are the, and the positive ones that sort of feed our sense of, yes, we are living a big life. We are living in an epic kind of sense of the world that my life isn't this teeny-bitty, teeny-tiny thing, but that I've got something grander going on. So I think it's very uh, uh, in, enticing. think, to think that way. And I don't, again, think they're necessarily literally true, maybe even at all. Maybe there are pieces and parts of them, but I think that what they sit underneath how we identify ourselves. And I think if you look at any group or culture around the world, you'll see a similar set of stories. And it might be actually a worthwhile uh, kind of imaginal exercise as you're wandering through your, your week this week to think about another culture that either you might have a relationship with or be intrigued by and try to parse out what some of those big stories are about that kind of cultural identity and how that might shape how that culture tends to react differently to things that, that, that are sitting in their sense of what they need to get done in the world and how they're going to do it that may be different than the U.S. Back to Campbell. The fourth function of myth is psychological. And he writes that myth must carry the individual through the stages of his life, or I will add her life, from birth or their life, from birth to mature through maturity, through senility to death. So all the way from, from day one to the end. And he says myth, mythology must do so in accords with the social order of the group, The cosmos is understood by the group and the monstrous mystery. So he's creating this sort of set of containers, right? There's the monstrous mystery on the outside. There's the group understanding of the cosmos within the the completely unexplainable and completely infinite, completely divine and numinous. Inside of that is all of the things that exist in this sort of powerful, amazing universe that we live within. Then within that is whatever the group is, whatever our sense of tribe is, and then within that is the individual. And he, what Campbell, I think, is saying, and I, I think he's dead on with this, is that we're all existing in those understandings all at the same time. And they never can be completely teased out from one another. We are never an island. You know, we are we are not ever only existing within our own sense of of our own personal understanding of the world. It's always being done in this larger context. And I think To me, this is one of the really interesting places where myth sits and our understanding of myth sits. And I think it does get very personal here, but I think in a really particular way. And I will save a a, a long-winded rant on the idea of personal mythology for another time, but for the moment, I'll, I'll just say that it's, for me, sits somewhere in the lines of jumbo shrimp, or working vacations, or civil wars in the land of oxymorons. I don't think personal mythology is necessarily a thing that works, I think it comes the other way. But that being said, I think that myth does open up some really deeply personal understandings of the world by giving us images that are so much grander than we thought that, that, that we are, and that, that we can sort of hold and comprehend, that they can help us pull out and make sense of what's going on in our own psyches. I think they're roadmaps. Myths are roadmaps. They're touch points. And, and the same, I use the word myth in some ways interchangeably with metaphor, and, and archetypes sit really tightly tightly in with them. But I think all three of those things, myth, metaphor, archetypes, are, are touch points and reminders that we're connected with one another. We're not necessarily d- different from one another, even though we may be having what feels like a, a deeply individual experience, particularly in a culture that is... Very dedicated to individual experiences, and that our own individual stories are fed by the stories that we sit within, and vice versa. And that's really where the the idea of Myth America comes from. In a lot of ways, it's the tagline for this podcast: the stories that we tell and the stories that tell us. And what I mean by that is. As we are telling a story it is telling us we are being shaped by the very stories we choose to tell and how they tell them how we tell them So they don't exist outside of us and we don't exist outside of them that there's this dance back and forth and for me That dance that back and forth is the most Delightful delicious part of myth for me because it sits in this paradox It's both and all the time. It's true and untrue all the time The Greeks talked about, and then the Romans actually talked about how myths were the things that were simultaneously least and most true. Celestius, who was a 4th century writer, he was a friend of the Roman Emperor Julian, wrote a treatise uh, called On the Gods and the Cosmos. Um, It was kind of a catechism um, in 4th century uh, paganism, Hellenic paganism. And he wrote, now these things never happened, but always are. So he's saying, they didn't happen, but they've always been true. And that truth sits in a kind of flashes of insight that can be deeper than what we see in the tangible world in front of us. And that's where myth becomes metaphor, I think. Meta translated from the Greek meaning carrying for across. You're carrying the meaning across, you're making meaning by moving from the literal into the abstract or the concrete into the intuited. And so that's why I can dance between this idea of myth and metaphor being often the same thing. Because that's, I think, how myth, in, in my sense of how mythology works most deeply, that's what it's doing, is that it's, it's helping us move across, carrying meaning from some literal experience that may be small and finite, into something that is much more enormous and grand. And so, in that moment, myth is so much more than a lie, right? If we understand myth this way, it is, it's no longer just this thing that you can dismiss and dis off to the side and go, ah, that's just a myth, but instead, it they, it pulses. Myths pulse in the background of everything we're doing. All of us. All of our times. Individually, within our families, within our communities. You know, region, locally, regionally, nationally, and in fact, globally. And we tell ourselves stories about all of those. And David Miller, who who is a... a was my academic advisor for my dissertation, a religious studies scholar from Syracuse University, and one of the great thinkers, I think, of that generation of, of thought around religion and myth, talked a lot about how myths are the big stories that kind of hum in the background. He, he, he calls it the television set running in the background, and that they're shaping our sense of who we are and our understanding of the world all the time. And I think when you look at myth that way, it begins, to, it begins to truly hum, and you start to not feel like you're in a Nietzsche kind of world where everything that is sacred is dead. It may feel more psychological than magically divine in some ways, and I think that's an interesting intersection to work, but I think the big stories and the power of the big stories are there and are sitting in our culture all the time, and in fact, we are always embraced by them and caught by them and shaped by them and sometimes inspired by them and, and to do grand things and sometimes inspired by them to do tr- her- truly horrific things on, on small and big scales. But they're always there. And so that's really where Myth America begins, is in this this sense of understanding of myth and, and why it matters. Because if you look at myth this way, it's not just this sort of frivolous thing off in the corner that that are kind of fun little stories, but instead actually becomes this completely embedded part of our lives, part of our both interior and also our practical lives, because the ways in which we are acting out every day in our lives are shaped by this. So, with all of that in mind, I have a theory, and I want to throw this in front of you and see what you think. And... As I look at where we are right now in the winter of 2021, I think we're living in mythic times. I think we are living in a time that feels unilaterally different in many ways than certainly in my lifetime, the world has felt around us. And I look at what's happening. Globally and also within the United States right now, and so many of the things that we've assumed would always work—systems, safeguards, what's normal, what's truth—that we've lived within, and and have seemed like they could never shift really beyond that. You know, maybe they'd blow a little in the wind, but there was the there were there were stakes set in the ground that were so stable that they were even stones, that. These are breaking. They feel like they're breaking open right now. Things that we have made assumptions about, basic ways that the world is gonna work, somehow seem like they've been tossed up in the air. Or they seem so fragile that they might not survive in ways that, again, in my lifetime, I haven't questioned that. And I think that invites us into understanding a time as being mythic. And so, as a result of this, The world doesn't seem quite so immediate or literal or mundane and instead it it feels like we're sitting and living and caught in this sort of story of mythic scale and and our lives are at risk the planet is at risk everything and it's so huge it's hard to fathom it's so beyond what we can do and it's it's kind of terrifying and overwhelming and i think it can offer some enormous possibilities and, and and openings as well but i think Often when we're sitting in places that feel this unsettled, our first reaction is, is to batten down the hatches and get scared. And the first and foremost thing that's of course at the top of most of our senses of the world right now is we're living in a global pandemic, the likes of which we've not seen for a hundred years. And it has changed how all of us are living on a day-to-day basis. We've been here for months. In the, in the United States, it's been closing in on a year. Uh, in other countries, it's been longer since since they sort of really pulled back and shut things down. And while there are ongoing efforts to understand this virus and contain this virus and manage this virus, one of the things that I think is really interesting about it and, and indeed kind of mythic about it is that it's a novel virus. And we throw that phrase around a lot without thinking about it very deeply. But if you think about it, it's it's... It's fascinating. This is a, a virus that's kind of breaking in and of itself our sense of the rules medically. That it's a virus that we've never seen before. It's a new one. So it's not something that we can look at with a sense of, of certainty about anything. And so we're, even as we're trying to contain it, we're also trying to understand it. So it's making a story even as it's emerging and we're making stories around it even as they're emerging and in most places right now, you know, all bets are off in terms of really understanding we've got a vaccine that's coming and and is starting now to hit in various locations around the world so there's a sense of there's an end to this uh, that uh, but we're not quite there yet and there's i don't think most of us have i certainly don't have a sense of certainty about you know, this really ending and that everything is going to go snap back to what feels normal or what felt normal to, to this, what we've, I've been jokingly, only sort of jokingly referring to as the before times, which in and of itself feels kind of mythic and story-esque in, in its phrasing. And if you think about it, you know, how we work, how we learn, how we consume, how we shop, how we eat, how we en- engage with the closest members in our lives is completely been shaken up or interrupted or stopped and in this era when we have a sense again at least in the u.s in, in the kind of cultures that are living in a in a kind of post-modern industrial capitalistic way in the world we're used to being able to solve problems really fast and get out of stuck places really quickly and what this virus has done in its newness in this new story that it's creating is that it's just broken it all and that we almost kind of with a flip of a coin went from re- living our lives in a real way, living out there in the world into a remarkably virtual experience. We're having Thanksgivings over Zoom. You know, we're, we're, we're meeting digitally, we're, li- we're working and living in our houses within our four walls that can be feeling really small (laughs) several months into this. And the way that we're reaching out into the world is virtually. We're not generally traveling. We're not flying to Thailand, but we may be learning about Thailand from images or stories that are coming from that place that we're getting through our computers or our television sets. And so in that moment, it seems to me, in that move to living virtually, It feels like that's another way in which we are living into metaphor in a way that we're not used to. Where are the connections between living a virtually driven life? And does that mean we're virtually living our lives? Which I think is a valid and slightly terrifying question. But what's the connection between a virtual life and a metaphoric life? And an understanding of the world in a virtual way and a metaphoric way? And I don't necessarily have the answer, but I think... There's something there that's really interesting. And as I said, we've got some hope on the horizon, but it's not over yet. And when we come back to when it's over, whatever that means, whenever that happens, the before times are going to be different than the post-after times, than the, than the post-COVID times. Things are going to be changed. And I don't know that any of us have a sense yet exactly what that's going to look like. And so even as we come out of the immediacy of the craziness of this experience right now, I think we've got a remarkable opening that's going to happen into what happens next. Again, I think this can be a place of, opening can be possibility, and it's something that I, I personally love, that sense of what, what's on that next horizon. My husband and I joke all the time that he's the one that sort of He's very creative and 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 whimsical in his own way, but he's he's rooted. He's the oak tree, and I'm like four ridges out, going yeah. Well, what what's happening after that? So I love being on that place. Most people don't, and so I think part of what has happened with this is that it's both reflecting and being reflected by our fear of how things are changing. And I think plagues and and um, as which we're in a pandemic. Uh, gets to some of the deepest senses of of our own identity and work politics they break norms and they break power structures that have existed and the you know there's language in in the greek traditions about how in stories about when great plagues would hit the greek soil that it was always after a particular kind of failure of leadership uh, which opens up some really interesting questions, I think, and images about, you know, how does that work? Or the, the wonderful Fisher King story cycles, that if the, if, the, if the king is sick, the land is sick, and vice versa. So there's this, this tied-in connection, I think, into where power sits in a culture and the health of the, of the place and the culture and the people within it. And then I think even more literally than that, we can look at other times and places in the world here on U.S. soil, In the period of time when, when really the a major wave of explorers and settlers came from Europe to what is now the United States, in the periods from about sixteen, sixteen through sixteen nineteen, there were prior to that arrival. There were an estimated 18 million or so Native Americans living on this continent, living on, on this piece of land, actually, not even just the whole continent, but actually the part that is now U, the US, so in North America, so US and Canada. So prior to the 17th century, 18 million people were living here. Between 1616 and 1619, when the settlers began arriving sort of en masse, their native population in the United States absolutely just was decimated up to 90% of the people who had been living here before Europeans showed up, died. And so by the end of that three or four year period, and shortly thereafter, when Pilgrim and Puritan colonists were coming here to New England, for example, they arrived to find empty villages. And why? Because the very first explorers from Europe came and brought with them diseases. Plagues, like smallpox, like the plague, like the bubonic plague itself, like chickenpox, cholera, even the common cold or the flu. Whole series, measles, scarlet fever, whole series of sexually transmitted diseases, tuberculosis, yellow fever, pertussis, whooping cough. None of which that 18 million people who lived in North America had had ever run into. They're, They're... Immune systems had never, ever hit, been hit by anything like this. So within a period of years, up to 90% of the people who lived here were gone. Think about that as a pandemic. Think about just the absolutely devastating rupture. If you thought about what would happen if 90% of the people now living in North America died within four years, what would that do? And in that instance, they were not just hit by a disease that mutated somewhere and became a thing. It was actually actively brought, and in some cases actively used as a weapon. There are multiple stories about how traders would infect blankets with smallpox, for example. And so, this here's this whole wave of people that are coming to, quote unquote, conquer a land that they think should be theirs. And they are decimating the people who live here, not predominantly by war, but instead by the diseases that they bring with them. Think about the mythic nature of that and how how that would, would just blow up everything you understood. And then add on to that, that it was calculated and in fact was seen by the Puritans and by British leadership as this completely reasonable and convenient and fairly wonderful thing to have happen. There's a terrifying quote I'm going to share from you from King James the First, And he says, Within these late years, there hath, by God's visitation, reigned a wonderful plague, the utter destruction, devastation, and depopulation of that whole territory, so as there is not left that any do claim or challenge any kind of interest therein. We, in our judgment, are persuaded and satisfied that the appointed time is come in which Almighty God, in his great goodness and bounty towards us, the people and our people, hath thought fit and determined that those large and goodly territories, deserted, as it were, by their natural inhabitants, should be possessed and enjoyed by such of our subjects. That has maybe hits me as the most horrific kind of divine right of anybody over anybody else's statement that I've ever read. So not only did the European settlers come and decimate the population that was already living here with diseases, but they then said, ah, it was God's will because we're the chosen one. I want you to take a moment and think about the rhetoric that is swirling in our country right now, in particular, in the U.S. right now, around what this pandemic means and who's getting it and who isn't and who deserves to have it and who doesn't and where the power sits in that and what the divine choices are in that i think in some ways we're frighteningly close yet still to that particularly when you look at how this disease is hitting communities of color for example and there's not a a national sense of that cannot happen but instead there's a you know not obviously with everyone, but there is some momentum around, well, que sera, sera, it is what it is. And I think that pandemic, this sense of all of those things that have been broken, and this sense of big looming potential fear, which people are, I think, greeting with a whole range of, of emotions and stories to deal with it. I think there are those of us who are you know absolutely over the cliff in fear about this as my husband said we're in our panic rooms uh, and i think on the other end of the spectrum there are those folks who just will not believe that this is even a thing and i think that starts to open up and shape our sense of what is working in the stories behind some of the political momentums that are going on right now and right now we've got a political system that is straining at the at the seams in a way again I've not seen in my lifetime. I think arguably it hasn't been strained like this since the Civil War, which we broke apart and then came back from. And we're really in a battle right now in this country about not only our core political structures, but I think more deeply how we communicate with each other and who holds the truth in these, where truth lies. We are living in an era where people talk blithely about alternative facts. So we're living in an era where people are saying fiction can be truth and vice versa. And if it feeds my narrative, if it feeds my interior story, that's the truth I'm going to choose not only to believe in but proclaim as the sole truth that anyone else should believe in as well. Really powerful stuff and a deeply mythic move. And if you think about all of the momentum, so whether it's around... What political party is in power or who is who is holding power who is being you know damaged by power and how power is being wielded well and for ill in this country and the protests that we've had for for any number of months that we have over the course of the summer into the fall of of folks that are pushing back against some really ugly deep mythology in this country around race and political leaders and media figures who are and voices who are insisting that our systems are so broken that we should just walk away from them, we should abandon them, and that they alone hold the truth. And we are in, I think in this moment, an enormous and, and, and you know, kind of galactic, uh, Star Wars hits again, battle over the narrative and who owns it? Who has the story, who owns it, who's telling the truth? And truth itself does not seem immutable here, it seems really fluid. And I think in this moment other things break open when that happens. I think it's part of what, you know, as we look at the systems around us that feel so off balance right now. Part of it is we don't know what to believe. And depending on who you believe, you may run up against somebody who believes so much the opposite of you that you don't even have a place to start from. And as I think about that, I I hit upon a Yeats poem and it's Probably one of my favorite poems, probably my favorite poem of Yeats, and you probably know it. Uh, it's called "The Second Coming. And interestingly, he wrote this poem in the aftermath of the First World War, which was a time when the when certainly Western Europe and and much of the world felt shattered in ways that nobody had anticipated. The idea of a world war was a was a new and pretty, again, epic galactic kind of mythic scaled thing. And it also he wrote it, during the 1918 1919 flu pandemic which I hadn't known until I went to go pull the text from this and and did a little bit of reading and I thought that was really interesting if you think about the layers of that war um, he was also really involved in the Irish independence movement which things were shattering in Ireland in particular way uh, and the um, then this a- a- epidemic and, and sitting the flu pandemic that you know wiped out millions of people uh, i uh, uh, at least one set of estimations it's hard to tell because the records their whole communities that sort of collapsed uh, and records weren't kept so but it was a, a global import event and certainly bigger in scale in terms of mortality than the than the covid pandemic that we're in now but disrupted the world at least as much if not more and so he wrote this poem and actually in the weeks prior to re- writing this poem Yeats's wife who was pregnant caught this flu virus and almost died so here's this place where he's working these big this is this is this campbell four functions right all of this stuff is sitting there at the same time he's working these big enormous societal things and this incredibly personal thing where he could lose both his wife and his child in this pandemic so here's here's at least the beginning of this poem the second coming turning and turning in the widening gyre the falcon cannot hear the falconer Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Blood dim tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And he goes on from there, but I, I think that first stanza of this poem is captures in many ways what i feel the stories are that are sitting right now in this kind of mythic time that i think we're living in and some of the pain and the the um fear and the sense of loss that the things that we've counted on and the kind of certainty that we've counted on and the convictions that we've counted on have been replaced by what feels like intensity that doesn't have any of that conviction and i think you can make that argument regardless of which side of the you know, in terms of perception, at least, which side of the political spectrum you might sit on, is that it feels like the other side is holding all of the bad stuff, and there's something I think extremely mythic even about that in that move. That there, there's not. We've moved into big story then, because that's not that's not literal truth. You know, as I sit and talk with neighbors who may feel very different than I do politically about the world, when we're talking with individuals and human and with each other as human beings and as neighbors and as friends, none of that stuff really is 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 close to the surface it sits way back in the background but when we live in these virtual worlds like social media where we are doing the kind of mostly anonymous drive-by this is the kind of discourse that we have and it's how i think in part these stories emerge and unwind and so i think regardless of where we are in this story we feel like we're in terms of who 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 we see ourselves as you know who's the enemy and who's the pregnant uh uh, uh protagonist um we're at that point in the story where it doesn't feel certain that the good guys are going to win and that the hero is going to survive and that there's hope in spite of the loss that we're feeling and that's starting to shift and starting to open i think for at least some folks in this culture i think for others right now given what's happening politically prior to the uh, um Bringing in of a new presidential administration and all that that means I think for some people there's a sense of my god Yes, there is hope it's going to change and I think other folks who are working a different story are feeling a Horrible sense of dread about what's to come and so we can't even agree on who the hero is We don't even know who the good guy is here and which version of this story is the quote-unquote right one And that's really disorienting and I think invites us to live with that kind of fear and a sense of death in a particular way, particularly again against the backdrop of this pandemic, and the sense of Thanatos, which in ancient Greek mythology was, uh, Thanatos was a, was a daimon, sort of a, a minor god figure, um, who was the figure of death, was the figure mostly of quiet death. Son of of according to Hesiod, uh, the son of Nyx, who is night, and Erebos, who is darkness, and the twin of Hypnos, of sleep. So you see this sense of, of, things that you can't see into, and, and loss of kind of consciousness that you're in sleep, and then this sort of figure that connects with them, death. And one of the ways I think that Thanatos gets worked really interestingly in modern culture is post Freud when he talked a lot about the death drive, and he he actually didn't use the word uh, thanatos to use this, and this has been some writers and thinkers post Freud's work, but he worked very deeply this idea of the space in between what we're working in story and in, in our deepest sort of psychological momentums between a drive towards death and destruction um, and he talked about it as being e- exposed and and expressed through behaviors like aggression or compulsion or self destructiveness against eros uh, and and the life force, creative force, and we tend to often, in the U.S., misconstrue eros into something that we see sort of gigglingly as erotic in a in a sort of open up the, the Playboy magazine way. What Freud was talking about with Eros was much bigger and deeper with that, and it really is this sort of irrepressible life force in, in not just human beings, but I think the planet as a whole. And these two things that sit in opposition, right, that, that, that both end of myth, and I think this is why this work is very mythic, is that he held that both end so deeply. So we've got this sense of, of drive towards life and survival and, and sex, absolutely, and other creative, life-producing, life engendering ways of being and then this destructive ending death drive and we're it seems to me we're sitting in a very kind of particular interesting place with that right now given given what we're sitting in both in terms of a pandemic what we're sitting in in terms of political rhetoric and and i'm i'm focusing on myth america this framework is the place i live because it's the thing i know the most about but i don't think it's unique at all obviously to the u.s i think this is playing out in a whole variety of ways around the country and there are you know systems changing in the background behind this with some broad brush you know we're ending the what's been called the kind of modern industrial age which i think in some ways a better way of defining is the oil age or the fossil fuel age we're coming to an end of that and all that's driven and we're coming into, I think, what's going to be the water age, where water is going to be the thing, rather than iron or bronze or stone or oil, is going to be the thing that drives us, is we're going to need, we're going to need water and clean water. And, and already you can see some of that sort of emerging on the horizon with issues around climate change and issues around fossil fuel production coming to a, a, a stuttering and hard end. And I think when those big metal level systems change, we start to grieve what we're losing. And I think that's another ingredient in how these stories are working out in identity, in our sense of who we are both as an individual and also as a community, when the big things that we've, the big stories we've sat in for at times hundreds if not a thousand years are shifting and our role in the new one is really unsure. And I think we've got a lot of resistance to that and a lot of grief about that. I think we feel protected by the systems and the structures and the stories that we sit in. And so I think that some of us sit and contract and, and want to hold on to things the way that they've been because that feels, the way you hold a story and you and you keep a story alive is you, you hold on to it. You grab it as hard as you can. And you insist that it's the true story. It's the only story. It's the right story. It's the one because it's the one that you have and and literally sits in your cells. I think another way that people respond to this is that they want to go out and make new stories. Or they want to fix it. They want to make it better. They want to change it. And I don't know that either one of those is, is the right or the wrong answer. I don't want to, to say that either one is better than the other. And my guess is that we all have some combination of both of them. And there's strength and there are challenges, I think, in both of them. But I, I certainly have a, 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 an instinct to, to, to fix Uh, in one way or another, and and like, as again, I I think like all of us do on some level or another, Uh, and I've been, as I've been thinking about this, and sort of thinking about this mythic sense, thinking, looking at the words of Yeats, looking at some of the writings and the thinkers of folks who were in moments where things were obliterated, and I didn't, and I should have, in retrospect, tried to find a voice, not just of King James, but of Native American voices that were actually seeing their worlds imploded. And I, I apologize for that, because I should have done that. If I find something, I'll, I'll, come, I'll bring it back on another show. But I thought I would end today with a sense of, of where that sort of mythic hope might lead us. That if we think about ourselves as living within myth in one way or another, and indeed living in mythic times, which is the theory and the idea of this particular episode of this podcast. It made me think about Albert Camus, who of course was a writer and he was a philosopher and absurdist, and he was not initially inclined to get particularly involved with the Second World War, but he was living in Paris when the Nazis came in and, and laid claim to it. Uh, and he realized that he in that moment had had to get involved and so he became an activist he joined the French resistance and he survived this experience and here's a piece that he wrote that gets quoted um, sometimes wrongly uh, out there in social media world a lot uh, that I think captures some of what we're sitting with in terms of kind of thinking about this mythic time and how we can maybe think about it with hope think about it as an opening Think about it as a place that is generative and not just something that is about the death and the endings of things. So sort of grabbing that piece of story as we work our sense of the world. It's a piece that he wrote in 1952. So he wrote it after the Second World War. He, he was looking backward. He, he wrote it uh, in a, uh, a Roman ruin actually called Tapasa. It was a place that he had gone as a child and so now he's at this place where the war is over and and the darkness in that moment felt like it had been beaten back that hope was 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 something you could hold on to again huge cost uh but it was but it was it was emerging again the sense of, of okay life life will continue beyond this just catastrophic set of events and and realities and the death and the destruction that happened and as i've been sort of working these ideas that's been a place where this, this, this little piece of writing has been something that's been sitting in my, in my brain and, and my fingertips and earlobes a little bit and reminding me that, yeah, you know, we, we, can, we, can, we can stand in our own little small individual non-mythic ways and that we can think and tell story and breathe into the things that matter in a much larger way than we, we think we can. And so I want to share that with you in this sense and in the hopes that it will open something like this for you. Um, it's the, the essay is called Return to Tapasa. It's from a book called The Myth of Sisyphus and Other Essays. And this is Albert Camus. I discovered, and this is again, he's gone back to this place he knew as a kid after the Second World War, Tapasa. I discovered once more at Tapasa that one must keep intact in oneself a freshness, a cool wellspring of joy, love the day that escapes injustice, and return to combat having won that light. Here I recaptured the former beauty, a young sky, and I measured my luck, realizing at last that in the worst years of our madness, the memory of that sky had never left me. This was what, in the end, kept me from despairing. I had always known that the ruins of Tapasa were younger than our new constructions, or our bomb damage, There the world began over again, every day, in an ever new light. Oh, light, this is the cry of all of the characters in ancient drama brought face to face with their fate. This last resort was ours, too, and I knew it now. In the middle of winter, I at last discovered there was in me an invincible summer. And so with that, I thank you so much for sticking with me in this first episode of Myth America as a podcast in this January moment of change and a lack of stability and things feeling so uncertain and unknown on some ways, I hope that you find within yourself an invincible summer as well. and thank you so much for joining me today. Myth America is sponsored by Spillion, a place to revel in the Catskill Mountains of New York. You can find out more about Myth America, Spillion, and me at mythamericaradio.com. Please, stop by and share your thoughts. I'd love to hear